There is no growth in comfort and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I'm Wanda Wallace. I get pretty excited when I get a chance to interview an executive who's done a number of transitions in their career and we get to talk about what those transitions have been like from somebody who's on the ground and having done it. And that's exactly what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about a whole range of topics surrounding transitions, like making mistakes and having globally dispersed teams, dealing with different cultures, building a personal brand, the power of networks, confidence, trust, and a whole lot more. So my guest today is Sujata Bhatia. Sujata is currently SVP and GM Head of Europe in the Global Merchant Services at American Express. She's held a number of roles at American Express over the last 14 years, including ones in strategy, one in the Head of European Acquisition, and the list goes on, as you can see. She's American, but she's been living for the last 17 years in London. And I will say that before she joined American Express, she was a consultant at Bain, and she is a graduate of the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Susata, I'm going to stumble on your name all day long. Welcome to the show. (laughs) Thank you for having me, Wanda. I'm thrilled to talk to you. It's great. I'm really, really looking forward to this one. And obviously, we've talked a lot over time, so this isn't the first time I've been speaking to you. So I'm looking forward to talking in a little more detail. Let's go. You've made several big transitions in your career, going from some one role to completely different roles. And I want to focus on a couple of those and get your perspective on what was easy, what was hard, how do you manage, and what did you learn? But I want to start with an unusual one, because early in your career, you were an executive assistant. So tell us a little bit about what that experience was like and why was that an important role for you? Yeah, that's a good question. So it wasn't an unusual start. It was a while ago in my career at Amex. Um, so I had joined Amex about 14 years ago, coming from you know accounting and strategy consulting, and then done some internal consulting and business development at Amex. And when I was coming back from my first maternity leave, I was looking for my next opportunity. And I was offered uh, an opportunity to be an assistant for one of the very senior leaders in the company. And what was interesting was usually that's a role most people jump at, but I had no interest in doing it whatsoever. And in fact, I remember sitting with the global head of HR and being offered the opportunity to meet this, you know, revered leader in the company to potentially support him in this role. And I said, you know, I really don't want to do that. In my mind, I was thinking I'm done with strategy. I don't want to be part of the entourage. I don't want to be, you know, in the back office. I was really clear that I wanted to get towards general management. That's why I joined Amex. And I couldn't see how this opportunity would add to that portfolio or get me closer. I thought it might just get me further away and deeper into the ivory tower. And so I talked to a few of my mentors in the company, and they all encouraged me and said, are you crazy? You really have to meet him. Um, He was a very unique uh, and exceptional gifted leader and someone that was well-known and on the rise in the company. And so I was convinced to meet him, and we had a one-to-one. I flew in to New York off of my maternity leave and sat down with him, and he said, well, I heard you don't want this job. And I said, yeah, that's true. It's a hard way to start an interview. And I said, uh, 
that's true. And he said, why not? And I said, well, look, I just don't see where I'm going to add value. I'm really keen to add impact. I don't want to write strategy decks all the time. I don't want to be a bag carrier and part of the entourage. And really, for me, I want to get in there, lead teams, and drive impact for the business and the company. And he said, well, what do you ultimately want to do? And I said, well, I ultimately want to be a GM. And he said, well, if that's the case, then this is the job for you. I've done a similar job earlier on in my career, and there's nowhere else where you're going to learn as quickly what it means to be a GM as you will in this role. You're going to be on an accelerated learning path. You're going to get the inside scoop, and you'll learn more in your time in this role than you could in a decade doing similar role, different roles across the company. So it made me pause for a moment um, and think, okay, well, this sounds a little bit like boot camp, but, uh, but I'm up for it. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, these roles all hang together with the chemistry between the leaders, and he was very charismatic, and so I took a leap of faith and decided to take the role. And in hindsight, it was probably the best career decision I made and really set me up for, you know, my trajectory in the company. And he was right. It was uh, really a way to, you know, become a GM by osmosis is, I guess, the way to talk about it. You learn so much in the company about how talent is assessed, how decisions are made, what matters to senior executives, what the role of a GM really is, and, and, uh, and how to navigate. So that was an incredible learning experience. You also learn, or I learned in that case, you build a great network. Uh, you know, I met people all over the company in all different functions uh, and all different business lines, and I've, I've continued to leverage that throughout my career. So it was a great experience. Fabulous. I love the fact that you said I don't want it. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people ask me all the time, can you say, particularly for what looks like a very plum job, no thank you. And obviously you did and then survived. Um, so I mean, I said politely. <laughs> oh, I hope so, of course. <laughs> of course. Um, and any regrets? Do you wish you'd not said no initially or was that a good no, thing? I- I think, uh, actually, I think it made the, to be honest, it probably made him work a little bit harder and take a bit more of an interest in what I could be doing in the job. I wouldn't, you know, recommend that as a long-term strategy for every job you're offered, but uh, it, it made us both very clearly articulate what was in it for him and what was in it for me, and I thought that that was really helpful. And then... Um, and I got some insight into him. He wasn't intimidated by the fact that, you know, I was potentially rejecting him, which meant that we were probably going to have a good a good chemistry as a leader and, and support uh, over time. I think, you know, what was critical, though, with that role was a few things. He really let me define that role for what would add value. And so he allowed me to define my role in a way where I was not 100% focused on his success, but I could focus on the success of the team. So what I mean by that is he had a number of direct reports that were running large businesses of their own. And I spent probably as much of my time making sure I was removing barriers for them and helping them be successful as I did supporting my leader in terms of his uh, goals and, and, and objectives. And so that was great because I not only got to build my brand with him, but I got to build my brand with a broader set of leaders who learned, you know, how I thought, uh, where I could be supportive, what I could be relied on for. Uh, and so when I ultimately left that job, I had more than, you know, just one senior executive sponsor, but a number of people around the company that, you know, were willing and able to hire me and had some buy-in into what I could bring to the table. I um, There are a couple of things that I think are interesting. The reason I wanted you to talk about this experience is I know people are regularly offered these kind of executive assistant-ish roles, chief of staff. I don't know. They come by different titles in different companies. Yeah. 
but where you're working hand in hand with a very senior leader, making sure that his or her agenda is actually being delivered on in a very substantive way. And I like what you said, that in this role, you really get to see how talent is assessed, how decisions are made, what really matters to the senior leadership. You learn what the GM role is, what the general manager role really is about. And not only that, but you build a great network and you get some great relationships and great sponsorship. And I just find that that's such an important tool for people who aspire to go on to do larger roles in the organization to have seen that early on and then know how to craft the rest of your career around some of those experiences. Yeah, it just gives you context that you can't gain that that easily. So you just have a perspective that is, uh, it becomes organic in terms of how you make decisions and how you navigate in the organization because you've seen a lot and you just understand the framework within which the company operates. I also had a really interesting experience because when I took that role, the company was booming. We then went through the global financial crisis, so literally bust, you know, wondering if we were going to be uh, illiquid at some point, and then back to boom again in relatively rapid order. So wow. I call that kind of leadership boot camp because not only, that, you know, it's sort of Hamilton, you know, be in the room when it happens. I was in the room when it happened in a lot of cases, yeah. which was great. But uh, so what I learned and what I saw in terms of how decisions were made at fairly apocalyptic moments and very different contexts in a short period of time was uh, was something you could you could go a whole career without seeing. And at the same time, I got to see not just how my leader operated through that, but how his leaders operated through that. So I could sort of pick and choose. And they were all effective but doing different things. So it allowed me to sort of pick and choose the leadership behaviors or the approaches that felt more authentic to me that I might want to emulate longer term in my, in my own leadership. Uh, so it was, it was really great to be able to observe and kind of just inhale, you know, at scale some a whole bunch of things that it might have taken a lot longer to learn. I can't imagine. That must have been powerful. I can't resist asking, though, sort of, you don't have to name names, obviously, because that would be unfair. <laughs> but give us an example of something that you decided to adopt on your own, particularly when you see times of crisis. Yeah, so there was... Um, there was two things that I really loved. There was one of the senior leaders that really took it upon themselves to be the glue, to be the communicator across the team. And he uh, ultimately went on to do something very, very senior in the company, but he made it his job to really be the linkage between all of these executives. You have to think all these executives have just seen the stock price drop to $8. Their own personal wealth has evaporated. They're not sure if the company they've been at for maybe 20 plus years is going to be standing the next day. Uh, And everybody's sort of uh, retreating to their corners. And he was the one that would pick up the phone and get on the phone with each and every one of them every day and be the connectivity across them to keep everybody on the same page and working as a team. And that was really interesting to see. The other thing that I really learned was uh, another one of the leaders who just really, his mantra was focus on what you can control. Focus on what is available to you and in your span of control, remove all the other distractions. Um, And that allowed him and his organization to just not panic and be able to kind of go step by step and take what they could in bite-sized chunks and focus on where we could win. Um, And so for me, those are two things that I just have as mantras uh, every time I'm in a a stressful situation or it looks like something is daunting. 
Great. I love that one. Those are two. That's fabulous. You know, when I listen to various companies having gone through crisis, particularly the most recent financial crisis, it's amazing how many times the person who became the linkage that connected people just kind of kept people's spirits going, you know, moving along and moving along and moving along, how powerful that voice force was and where it came from often in surprising ways. Yeah, and you would never have guessed the person that was doing that, but but they were incredibly effective and long term have gone on to become a, a very impactful leader in the company. Okay. All right, so let's talk. You decided to leave. Now, one of the other things I find when people take these kind of roles is they tend to stick <laughs> around in a really long time, maybe too long, because then you're not getting back out and doing your own thing and building your own brand. So, how did you decide it was time to leave and how did you go about finding the next transition? Yeah, so actually when I sat down, Ed was the, the leader that I was working for, and I sat down with him in the first time when I said, I don't want the job. One of the things I also said was, and I don't want to be here for too long. I need to get, you know, I want I need to make an impact and move on. And he had 100% support of that. And at the time we said, 18 months, 18 months, that should be the length of the job. Now, I ended up staying for two and a half years. And as I mentioned, we were in boom, global financial crisis, and then boom again. So I had a relatively vertical learning curve. And at the same time, he had uh, also taken on incredibly expensive, expansive responsibilities across the company. So, you know, that was a great time of learning. But as you say, there's time, you know, good things need to come to an end. And so when it was time to end, um, it was really, well, one thing was very clear to me. I was due to have my second child. So I had some very nice bookends on either side of that experience, um, which was very good timing. But also uh, at that point, uh, my leader, who was really bought into me, offered me a promotion to be his head of strategy. And I turned him down. Um, and so that was, you know, another hard conversation. Um, but I really felt, you know, and I reminded him when I'd started that, you know, we've been on this journey together. We're very comfortable together. We could keep doing it forever. But you ultimately should want me in the business driving results if you believe in me. Um, and what we had always talked about is that I want to be a general manager. And so if I become your promoted head of strategy, I'm just going to continue down that path. I have those skills. You and I both know I could deliver that, but I'll never get off that track and, and build the general manager skills that I need to. Uh, and so, we, you know, we had that tough conversation. He was very supportive of it. And then I had to go off and search for my next gig uh, with all of his direct reports that had gotten to know me over the years and find something that ticked all the boxes. Um, so I think... It was the right time, two and a half years. I did have, you know, uh, maternity is a really helpful stopping point, but (laughs) I would say for anybody else that I would never recommend that you stay in those roles for more than kind of three years at a time because, you know, 18 months is always unrealistic. It's too short. By the time you have the chemistry and you've lived through a cycle, your real learning in those jobs is is when the second cycle comes around because then you've learned all the processes and that's when you're really going to start to improve things and, and really start learning and adding your own impact. But longer than three years, you start to get really comfortable um, and, and distanced and, and you stop pushing yourself to be the owner of things and you get really comfortable in that support role. Yeah, I see that um, it's so much fun being in those in those kind of roles because you deal with everything in the company. So it's exciting. It's fun. You're on the inside track. And I find people are a little bit reluctant to walk away from it because it's so much fun. And then they get succumbed into taking exactly what was offered to you, which is sort of a strategy role. But after you've done that role then for three years, the movement next is, it just doesn't come. You're kind of then stuck in some headquarters functions for far, far, far yeah. too long. And then you're just known for that leader 
and you're known, for, and the right. question is, but what has she really done? You know, I yeah. get that she's really well associated with that leader, and I have positive things to say, but what did she drive? And I think that's a, a no-win situation. Okay. All right. Well, let's move away from this one and go talk about another big transition. And I know there's been a bunch of ones, so I'm going to let you pick the one that you like the most. And what one that didn't go so well? So what happened and how did you manage it? Oh, actually, the one that I would pick is when I met you. Um, So (laughs) that was the one right after that job. So I went searching for my next gig, as we said. And and as I said, I really wanted to to take something that was more of a stretch and more uh, leading me down the path of general management. So I ended up um, meeting a leader in the business and who offered me a lateral opportunity to start up a kind of a product development and sales job for a new business line that the company was building in data analytics. And that job was a stretch on every dimension. It was funny because it was it would have been easier to be promoted and be the head of strategy than to do the lateral job into this kind of new area. Um, and it was really a big risk. I was working for somebody who had been hired from outside the company, so it was relatively untested. There was a lot of investment coming from the business into this area, and I had to, in relatively rapid succession, build a sales and product development team, You know, create the products, get them out to market, go meet customers, hit revenue targets, build and articulate the strategy. And because there was a lot of investment coming from above, you know, under pretty heavy scrutiny from senior leaders and be able to kind of manage both the delivery articulation of our strategy and results and the actual doing. And that job, the first six months, just about killed me. It was, you know, an intense stretch along every dimension because pretty much all of those things were things I had never done before. I mean, the strategy articulation, fine. The working with senior executives, fine. I actually could leverage my internal network and the people that I knew to help me get started. But there were a lot of things that were new for me. You know, I had been customer-facing as a consultant, but never in terms of selling them things and asking them to pull money out of their out of their pocketbooks to, to pay me for products and services. I'd never done product development before. I'd never been deep in data analytics. And I'd never hired and recruited a team at scale, and particularly a team of salespeople. And for me, I think that last piece was probably the biggest challenge. I just didn't have really any processes, any way of assessing talent. Uh, you know, I hadn't done the job before, so I didn't really know what I was hiring for. I didn't have talent pipelines uh, because I was starting from scratch, and I didn't have a track record as a leader uh, in terms of attracting talent. So it was really tough uh, being able to do that. Um, and so ultimately, you know, I I got there, but I, I remember I was in a, I think, a high performer female program at the time and and you were one of the coaches there. And so I remember spending time with you and getting your tips on how do you hire, how do you interview people, what's the right organization structure. And I went around to my mentors around the company and got a lot of information. And then I went to everybody I knew to beg them to help me find talent for those roles (laughs) Um, and did a lot of pre-vetting to get the right people into the jobs because ultimately I was going to live or die by how good the team was that I brought brought in to support me. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And did you make mistakes in hiring along the way? I did. Um, I think my three out of my four key leadership positions, I did a, I did land wonderful talent. One of them, I made um, a pretty big mistake in terms of um, getting the wrong the, the the wrong understanding from the outset on what the job was versus what the candidate wanted to do. 
Um, and I understood pretty early on, probably four to five months in, that this is never going to be a fit for what their goals were, and we had to address it quickly. And I helped them find another role in the business and then, and then backfilled with someone that was better suited to the role. So four months in, you're moving somebody else onto another role. Yeah, uh, because there was just no time to no time to waste. And once I worked out that it was a misalignment of expectations versus, um, you know, a lack of will versus a lack of skill, it was a much more straightforward conversation. Okay. Yeah. I, I um, so many people say that if you don't have the right team, especially when you're trying to do something you've never done before, that it's next to impossible skills. And then they also say, if you got the wrong people, make a decision quickly and move on because you just can't afford to waste a bunch of time. You demotivate the team and everybody else around you in the process. Yeah, so I agree with that. I think, I think also, the, um, well, my learning as a leader is that you also have to look at the portfolio effect. So you, you can't say that every leader, every person you hire has to be perfect because that's just unrealistic. And who's ever going to have a perfect team full of perfect individuals? Uh, that would be ironic because I'm not perfect, um, a bit hypocritical, but ultimately you need to make sure that the portfolio you build across your leaders gives you the aggregate skills and then figure out what each of your leaders are good at and make sure they have um, the ability to influence what they're really good at and then help them develop the other areas. But for me, yeah. it's really a portfolio effect in hiring. That's a great, uh, I hear that a lot of times too, that you look at your team, you say, what do I not have on this team? Or where's the gap I need? And how am I going to get that one filled in terms of capability, capability and style on the team? Yeah, I mean, I needed to hire someone that was good at sales, right? And I'd never built a pipeline before, managed a pipeline, had to get a team around hitting targets. So I hired a great salesperson and I brought in kind of the analytics. And I, I knew they were bright enough to get the analytics, but I had to bring in my own analytics and um, strategy pieces to that, and we complemented each other. So, you know, it's it's always that kind of yin-yang effect. Right, right. Okay, so you're, here you are, you're taking this massive risk. There's a whole bunch of things that you've never done before. Um, you, you, how did you keep your confidence up, or did you have a trouble with that? Um, that is a good question. How did I keep my confidence up? Yeah, I probably had a couple of, like, crisis of confidence early on where I'm thinking, my God, you know, particularly when I couldn't run an effective recruiting process, that was, that seemed like it should be easy and I seemed to be making it very hard. Uh, so I definitely had a support network internally and externally that I relied upon to kind of bounce ideas off of and recalibrate. Um, I set micro goals and macro goals so that I could see if we were making progress and have kind of data to help me keep progress. Um, And actually, I would say coming out of that um, EA role or that that chief of staff role, I had really good perspective and context on, you know, what was life or death for the business and for myself. So I think that helped me keep a healthy sense of perspective um, on, uh, and and therefore, you know, not have a massive crisis of confidence. Um, But yeah, I think it was a daily battle, but we started to make progress relatively quickly and then I had milestones and I could see that we were going to make we were going to hit those milestones and that helped. Great. One of the things that I've always admired about you Sujata is that you seem to keep a very fine very clear in your head what's a big issue and what's not a big issue. I mean it's like you said about your earlier watching a senior leader that they were very focused on what they could control and what they couldn't control. Um, Can you say more about how you keep yourself so centered on what you're going to worry about and what you're just not going to deal with today? (laughs) Um, 
Well, I think it helps to have a lot of uh, a thriving family at home outside of work that gives you a, an ounce of perspective. But I think I am really clear. I'm a, I'm a goal setter, so I I have a, a very clear idea when I'm setting off for something on what I think the outcomes should be or what are winning outcomes and uh, what winning looks like for myself and for the team. And so when I have things coming at me, I just sort of th- throw it through that funnel, you know, like what's the degree that this is going to hit what winning looks like. And then my next filter is how much can I control this? You know, is it mm-hmm. regulatory? And therefore I just have to wait and see what happens. And if so, I can't obsess about it. I have to put our mitigation plans in place, but you know, I'm not giving up. It's not an option. Um, or is it, you know, something that's a deep flaw in our business that I need to get my hands into and fix now because it's going to derail us. So I kind of think those are my two sets of controls. And then my third filter is who do I have on it? Uh, you know, is it, do I have my A team on it? Do I know that they're going to deliver? Is it something that I feel like I really need to dive into myself or can I leave them to run with it and just get, you know, the periodic updates and trust that it's going to be handled. Um, and so I kind of put those three filters on everything I do. I love that one. So there's a very clear goal setting that you know what success looks like and you know how are you going to how well are you going to hit what success looks like? Question number 1. Question number 2, how much can I control? And what can't I control? What do I do? I need to get my hands in and fix. And question number three is, who do I have on it, and can I leave them to just run it, or do I actually really need to get in and get involved? Yes, that's a much better articulation of what I just said. Yes, that is exactly right. That's exactly <laughs> what you, you just do what said. You do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, it, one last question. Then we're going to take a break. Which is on this one. You, you have a whole bunch of new people that you're coming in. Everybody always says you have to trust your team, but trust is an easy word to say and not quite so as easy to do. What's your secret for building trust in the people that are reporting to you? Building trust in them or them building trust in me? Um, well, it does go both ways. So I'll let you answer either side of it. So you early trust, on, you yeah, go ahead. Early on, I try to do a pretty quick assessment on what I think their, their real spikes are in terms of exceptional you know, superpowers and where the blind spots are. Um, and, and so, and that's usually with little challenges. You know, I, I think people always say they never leave a meeting with me, with me where they've answered every one of my questions. Um, and that's probably feedback, but it means that I'm keeping them on their toes. And I don't need everyone to answer all their questions perfectly. I just want to understand how they think. Um, and that helps me understand where their superpowers are. Are their superpowers that they're all over their numbers? Are their superpowers that they really have a great, uh, skill with customers? Is it that they, you know, have an incredible creative streak that allows them to develop great products? Once I have that, um, you know, I try to give them a lot of rope in those areas. And on the areas where I think that they have development needs, I try to compensate. I try to be a flexible leader so that I feel like I can both develop them but add what they're missing. Um, and so I think the important thing for me is people what I always tell my team members is that my job is to make you successful. And that is my actual only goal. And if you're successful and everyone else around is successful, the team will rise. Like all ships rise together. And that is my ethos. It's not a zero sum game. It is truly additive. And I work really hard with my team members for them to hear that and understand that and see that those are the values I live. Because in my opinion, as long as they're being successful, good things are going to happen. And, and so Early on, I really focus on that relationship and that diagnostic because it helps me 
help them be successful and understand what their goals are and what they're trying to accomplish and how I can help. Well, it's so easy to see that, but boy, is it a powerful one when you actually work with somebody who has that view. So the notion that your job, your only job is to make the people who work for you successful just makes for an interesting statement about what it is you're doing as a leader. It's fascinating. Sujata, we're going to take a break. Um, with me today is Sujata Bhatia. Sujata is currently at American Express, where she is a general manager, SVP and GM, head of Europe in global merchant sales. She's done a number of jobs, as you can tell, at American Express. Before American Express, she was at Bain as a consultant. Before that, she was at Ernst & Young. And somewhere along the line, found time to get her degree from um, Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. We'll take a break. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about some issues that Sujata has dealt with in her transition. So we'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. How is your business running? It should be running smoothly with nary a hiccup, like a finely tuned machine. But if you're like most businesses, yours may be running nowhere close to that. Listen for Operationally Speaking with your host, Sergio Samel. Our program will help you to run your entrepreneurial business easier, better, with less frustration. And by running it well, you're sure to be poised for faster growth. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Sujata Bhatia. Sujata is at American Express, currently as SVP and GM, head of Europe in the Global Merchant Services Group. And we've been talking about Sujata's transitions. First, her transition is being an executive assistant or chief of staff for a very senior leader and the ways in which that taught her in a very crisis-driven moment what it meant to be a general manager. And then in her first major job after that, where she's doing a lot of things that she had never tried before and how she got through that experience 
built the team, trusted the team, and indeed learned to do what she uh, set out to do. I want to talk about, you know, you've said, Shajata, that every now and then you've had some odd experiences in your team. And one of the time is you said you had a bully on your team. Tell us sort of what happened and how did you discover it and what did you do? Yeah, that was that was a hard moment for me. Um, I think as a leader, I take the culture and values of my team really seriously. And um, I'm very invested in making sure that I have that right culture of respect and uh, and belief in people and driving success for everyone in the team. So discovering that I had a leader in my team that was bullying people was really uh, a bit like a slap in the face. Uh, that it was kind of, it's like finding, you know, toxic mold in your house, thinking how could that yeah. have been growing for all this time and I didn't even notice it. Um, and it was around the time when I had taken on a much bigger role. So I had moved from, you know, a team of 200 across maybe uh, 15 markets to a team of four or 500 across 23 markets. And literally at that point, you can't, you, you move away from knowing every single person in your team and their motivations and goals and aspirations, and you move to a world where you, you don't actually physically know every single person that works in your team, and you're very reliant on your leaders to deliver your message um, and be able to translate those leadership values throughout the organization. And so I had a guy in my team that uh, I discovered was bullying uh, his employees, and he was... Uh, you know, not surprised. He was a very high performer, historically high performer in the company and, and had been for many, many years. And it was unclear how long that behavior had been going on. But a really brave employee blew the whistle and filed a grievance. And it went through, you know, the standard processes. And we originally thought it was, you know, just a minor grievance being filed. And the more we dug and dug and dug, the more it came out. And that was uh, pretty heart-wrenching for me. And, and a really hard thing to deal with uh, because I thought, how could I not know? How could nobody have come to me? How could this have gone on? And, and I always pride myself on having that intuition and being in touch with every layer of the business. How could I, how could I have not have seen it? That was really hard. Um, and I think at the time, so, you know, we, I sat down with that leader. And as I, I told you before, you know, I'm really invested in making sure everybody that works for me is successful. And so I had spent a lot of time in investing in him to help him uh, grow and expand and develop. So it also felt like a bit of a betrayal to see that, that behavior further down. And when I sat down with him to to assess what we were going to do, you know, we had sort of a come-to-reckoning a, a come moment where I wanted to understand how much he understood how these behaviors were impacting people around him. And he really didn't. You know, he was very focused on continuing to manage the message and uh, retain his career trajectory and and manage me in that process versus really having a soul-searching moment and understanding that this was something that was just not acceptable and couldn't continue. So um, I made the decision to uh, to remove that employee from, from the team and from the business um, and, and had to stand by that. Um, and, you know, it, it came with a lot of disruption. Uh, the employee was a very high performer in a highly specialized field, um, which, you know, was going to take time to, to backfill and recruit. But I felt that, you know, those are the times where you show your team what, what values you care about and, and what you're going to stand for. Um, and so, yeah, it was difficult. 
Yeah, I um, and I know employees who are in the middle of the organization are going to turn and say, how could you not know? You must have known. Yeah. But I could also go the other way and say, you know, it's easy to not know it because you can't know 400 and 500 people and what the experiences are when you're not there. Well, and what you realize is that you get to a level where although you don't realize it, you're so senior that people don't tell you things anymore. Um, and so although you think you don't care about the hierarchy and you care about engaging at every level of the business and you try to create those connections, ultimately they still see you as a very senior leader in the company. Um, and, and so speaking up uh, is daunting. And you see enough in you know, corporate America today where people speak up and nothing happens. And so uh, it's not that easy for them to speak out. And that's why I okay. thought it was even more important than when they did that uh, that we we actioned it because right. that's how people know what your values are. That's right. That's right. That you take it seriously enough to look at, even if you think that it's just a minor issue along the way. Yeah. I can, well, I think we all have those experiences where you literally feel somewhat betrayed by somebody you thought you could trust, and then it turns out not to be this case. And there's growth in those moments as much as there anything anything else. Um, let's turn, though, to uh, running. You said you went from 200 to 400, 500. And let's talk about running a very large, globally dispersed team. So what's been challenging about that for you? Um, well, part of it is what I just said, which is that, you know, I have a board on my wall in my office with 450 faces on it. And that is because to every day that team sits across, you know, over 30 markets around the world. And I don't see every one of them. I don't see my managers in Japan on a day-to-day basis or the ones in Mexico or the ones in Phoenix, Arizona. And so I sort of have this virtual office in my office mm-hmm. to keep, to put them all in one place so I can physically see them and remind myself who the people are that I manage and that I'm responsible for. Um, and I think uh, the challenge of it, the challenge of that role specifically is that uh, of the business is in the U.S. and 50% of the team is in the U.S. and I sit in London. And that role was put in the U.K. specifically for me. It would naturally fit in the U.S. reporting into the global president who's in the U.S. So not only is it a large globally dispersed team, but I'm not sitting in the natural geography where you would if you wanted to be impacting everybody in person at that scale. Uh, So I've had to really come up with a lot of... um, (laughs) I've had to come up with a lot of systems and processes and a lot of uh, personal investment in terms of travel and communication to make sure that I can stay connected to my team um, and be able to influence and manage in many cases remotely. Okay. Uh, Any tips on how do you do that? Any words of wisdom? Well, I think, you know, I do a few things. So I... I have global calls with my team, um, and I do too, so I can make sure everybody can sort of see it in their time zone of their of their choice. I am I'm a big fan of video, so I communicate as much on video as possible. I do video conferences wherever possible um, to be able to connect with people versus just the phone. Um, I plan my travel pretty surgically to make sure that, you know, there is no substitute for being in person, so to make sure that I can get to the different markets and connect with people and get to know them. And I've picked, you know, at some at some stage, you pick a level of the organization that you're just going to know inside and out and try to make sure that you can influence. So in that team, you know, there's four, 450 people, but there's 50 directors and then a whole bunch of people underneath them. So there's something like 20 VPs, 50 directors. And my goal in that team is to know every single director and to have a hand in 
that talent pool, understanding them, them hearing from me what the mission is and the vision is, them understanding what the values are, connecting with them on a regular basis, because I feel like that is my critical leadership layer that I need to influence to drive good outcomes for the team. I love that. I also love that you have uh, the 450 faces on the wall in your office. I can attest to having seen it. (laughs) It's quite an impressive list, but it does help you stay connected. Yet is another put the personal face. And I also like that you say the directors, the 50 directors are the ones that are going to be your, I'm going to use the word leadership pipeline. They're the ones that will actually really help you deliver. And that's the talent you want to stay close to. So to actively work at that. How about dealing with the cultural differences within the team itself? Yeah, I mean, I think the first step is knowledge and respect. I mean, stereotypes exist for a reason. While you never want to stereotype, you want to acknowledge where the cultural basis for them are. I think what helps me is I'm you know, an American of Indian descent that's lived in Europe for 17 years, married to a Brit who was raised in South America and the Middle East. So even at home, we have a little bit of a cultural mishmash, which allows me to be sensitive to a lot of different um in different different cultures and, and preferences. You know, it is it is very much true that if I go to some of my um, Latin markets, I make sure that I actually design agendas that are meant to be flexible. The agenda is a guideline, only a guideline, and that, you know, meetings will go long and we will encourage debate and have lively conversation. Similarly, if I go to some of my more Northern European markets or some of my East Asian markets, uh, the agenda should be respected, and it's actually incredibly rude if I deviate off of that. Um, and so it, it's things like that that you just need to know coming in. I think it's really important for every market you see and the people you're engaging with there to know that you understand their culture and you respect it. And so, so taking the time to be curious about what makes their market unique, what makes their context unique, and taking the time to understand that goes a very long way, and they do appreciate that. Um you know, I even for myself, after I, I vary my leadership style, my communication style based on where I am. And I remember many years ago when I, uh, after being an international for a long time, I started working a lot more in the U.S. And I remember getting feedback that I, um, I was too quiet in meetings and that I, when I started working back in New York and that I had to really dial up my uh, executive presence. And it was shocking to me because I'd never heard anybody tell me that I seemed to lack confidence or that I was quiet in a meeting. But what I realized is that I had spent so many years in international adjusting my communication style to avoid being seen as the brash American or the ugly American that I had forgotten to <laughs> to back adjust that persona when I got back into New York. So what came across as, you know, charming and self-deprecating and, and culturally fluid outside outside the U.S., when I got back into U.S., came across as uh, lacking in confidence and potentially lacking in executive presence, uh, which is a death knell when you're working for a U.S. company. So I had to actually go back and reconfigure and remind myself, no, 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 I'm back home and, and this is a different way of communication. Fascinating. I love that. <laughs> it is true, though. You're, you're constantly adjusting to who's in front of you and what their set of expectations are, because that's how you're going to get the best out of them. You said a couple times that one of your big things is to keep everybody on message and on mission. How do you do that? Um, so that is really important to me. I think the first thing is no more than five priorities, not a laundry list, not, not you know, five priorities with six sub bullets, you know, some relatively pithy, clear goals. Um, and 
really painting for people what winning looks like in practical and pragmatic terms. Um, so I try to set that early on and communicate it. You know, I used to be in marketing, as you know, so for me, nobody gets the message the first time. You know, repetition is your friend. Um, and so I try to communicate it and repeat it and put it through every channel possible uh, and bring it to life with tailored and localized examples. Um, I ask about it every time I'm working with teams to make sure they understand why they're doing things. And I work really hard to provide context and make sure that my leaders are providing context to their teams because, you know, whenever I'm with someone, I'll say, but why are you doing this? What's the ultimate goal? And I, and I test to see if they understand that because there's nothing worse than just working on something mindlessly or not having an understanding of what it ladders up to. So for me, context is the most critical piece. And I think then you can shift missions as long as people understand the context and why, and that's how you take them on a change. Okay. Oh, that sounds fascinating. I, you have to say more about that. You take them on change by getting them to understand the context and then yeah. steadily moving them in the direction you want them to go. Yeah. So, you know, I if I give you an example, we had, you know, quite a big change in our organization a number of years ago where we decided to bring together a bunch of lines of businesses that had always been separated. And it made a lot of sense at the time because we were um, undergoing significant regulatory change. We had a lot of uh, changes to the business model that we needed to execute, and the margins in the in the business were going to be compressed. So by creating those synergies and bringing those business lines together, it made a lot of sense for the business, but would be very disruptive. And we were about a year into that change when a lot of things started to happen across the... And when we had everybody on mission and we explained why this disruption was important, what it was going to ultimately achieve for the business you know, what the short-term pain was going to be able to deliver in terms of long-term gains and continued to articulate the benefits and highlight it any time we had a small win from or a big win from, from that new structure. But about a year into it, after we had everybody on board and on the mission, uh, a couple of things that were a massive change for the overall global company. And this, uh, while this mission and vision were important, they were a distraction for something that was much bigger for the global company. And I had to be the face of going around and explaining to people why we'd had them on a mission for a year and now had to undo it. And the way we did that was by providing a lot, and the way I did it was by providing the context and helping them see you're an employee of this company. You care about the success of the global global company. These are the big macro things that are happening. And while this is a great idea, it's the wrong time and actually is going to cause stress on an organization that at this point needs to be laser focused on navigating this other major change. And I think by providing that context, we were able to keep probably 80 to 80 to 85% of the employees navigated through that change and feeling motivated and feeling engaged with the company because they understood the why and they could understand how this is much greater than their, their patch. And presumably this is you, Sujata, sitting down with people face-to-face in town yeah. halls, in video conferences, in every yeah. meeting you have. I'm going back to your 50 directors that you try to stay in touch with exactly. to make sure that they've seen it eyeball to eyeball for you. Yeah, it was a communication mission. Uh, <laughs> every channel, every opportunity, you know, consistency was king. I can imagine. Um, we just got a few minutes left, so but I want to talk about sponsors. Um, 
Partly because I know American Express has been such a big supporter of all the work around sponsorship and the sponsorship effect. And so just to clarify for everybody, you have defined sponsors as someone who decides to put their personal capital at risk in backing a leader and that it is an earned thing. It's not an assigned thing or a designated thing. And you earn it by showing people what you can deliver and delivering consistently and building that reputation and so forth. I hope I did a decent job of describing how you describe sponsorship. Um, What I'd like to know is how important have sponsors been to you and what have you done to cultivate that sponsorship over the years? So I think uh, sponsorship and my sponsors have been critical to me throughout my whole career. Um, And, you know, many years ago before Amex kind of latched on to this research and the idea of sponsorship, we didn't have a name for it. Uh, but, But now we do. And I think the first step in all of that is identifying when you have a sponsor and really making the differentiation between a sponsor and an advocate. Because you know, when things are going well, there's a lot of people that want to jump on the train and be responsible for your success. But sponsors are the ones that are uh, invested in your success and are moving mountains and pushing barriers for you and and uh, and sticking their neck on the line for you. And so, in my opinion, with the sponsors that I have, the first responsibility you have to your sponsors is to deliver for them because it's a two-way relationship. Um, and typically, the sponsors that I've gained, I've gained because I have delivered for them, either in a direct reporting relationship or because they were working closely with me on a project and they could feel that I was as invested in their success as I was in, in my own. And uh, and that delivery responsibility doesn't change even when the working relationship changes. You know, they need to feel that you have their back just like they have your back. And I think I've invested in doing that uh, because I really care about relationships. And so those relationships to me feel very organic um, and symbiotic. So, you know, I've had many sponsors through the year that most of the time what my sponsors have done for me have been uh, one to open my eyes on the possibilities. Really, I've had multiple, I guess, interventions in my career where I've been sat down by a sponsor that says, you need to think bigger for your own personal career. You need to be um, more ambitious on what is available to you. And, and I've had a couple of those conversations over the years that have been really critical to having to making me reframe what I want. And then I've had sponsors that have pushed me to be much more articulate about what the right next move is and what my ultimate ambition is, um, which, you know, for many reasons I was reluctant to do. And, and that has been incredibly valuable. And that only happens when someone feels, you know, that they are invested in your success and that, and that, that your success is as important to them in some cases as their own. Yeah, one of the things that you said early that I find is rare among female senior leaders is this ability to articulate early enough that you want to be a general manager. As you know, one of my frustrations is not enough women choose the path early enough to do general management, and then they don't become a credible candidate until it's too far down the line. So, have you always known you wanted to be a general manager or is that, you know, conversations with sponsors that have pushed you? Well, you know, it's funny. I always knew and then I forgot. So I knew when I was in high school that I, you know, I'd read Fortune magazine and knew I wanted to run a company. And when I applied to business school, when I was going to Wharton, my whole essay was about how I wanted to be the CEO of a hospital. 
And when I came out and I left Bain, the reason I left Bain and I told the managing partner I was leaving is because I wanted to be a general manager and I joined Amex because I wanted to be a GM. So I kind of always knew. But then as I got successively more senior and I started to do roles in marketing and business development and operations, I kept getting promoted and taking on new stretch roles and new functions. And I sort of lost my path um, in that I I became less committed to being a general manager or I, I sort of lost the understanding of how time was moving on and I was getting more senior and that that path was going to start to become less available to me. Um, and that took a sponsor intervention uh, to sit down with me and basically have a moment to say, yes, you can keep getting promoted and you can keep getting more senior. But ultimately, if your goal is to run something, and I think it should be, you need to move into a big P&L general manager job at this level now because there will be fewer available to you as you continue to get senior and you're going to get boxed out. And that was a, a gift uh, and very hard to hear and was you know, responsible for the, next, the exact next career move I made, but, uh, but was something that I had lost track of articulating that personal ambition. Yeah, it's. I think it's hard to understand what kind of moves you need to make next and what ones are going to open up avenues for you and what ones to close down avenues when you're on the path yourself. It takes somebody above that who sees the whole array and can say to you, you need to move laterally at this moment and that job may not look that exciting, but let me tell you why you need to be doing it. Um, because yeah. this is what it sets you up for. And without that guidance, I don't think anybody can see what's the obvious next move other than just the next step in the function that you're in. So the next higher step, and the next higher step, and the next higher step. Yeah, but someone has to really care enough about you and your success to do that because it's very convenient for them to keep promoting you and having you deliver on all the different things you can do. Uh, so that is truly a sponsor. Yeah. <laughs> Don't we all know that one as well? It's also easy not to listen to that because sometimes the messages aren't very good. All right. So, Jata, you've got one and a half minutes. If you have one advice for one bit of advice for people who are looking to develop their own leadership capability earlier in their careers, what's your piece of advice? What's my piece of advice? Um, well, get a coach like Wanda Wallace. That's my advice. <laughs> okay, thank you for that endorsement. I much appreciate that one. <laughs> it helped me. No, I would say, you know, really be clear on what what the goals are. Be very invested in your people's success. You know, the success of the people around you, both your peers and the people that work for you are ultimately going to help you be successful and help your, you achieve your goals and help your customers and help the business. And so for me, that is the most important thing a leader can bring to the table. All right. Fabulous. Sujata, it has been a wonderful conversation. I cannot imagine how I'm going to possibly summarize this, but I think I'm going to go back to a couple of things that you said that I think are really fascinating to me. One is this notion that, um, to keep everybody on mission and on message and that you spend so much time making sure people understand why they're doing what they're doing down to asking people, why are you doing this? Even though, you know, you want to know if they know and just drilling that message and drilling that message and making sure all of your leadership does the same thing. And then that when you have people understanding the why, that's the basis for getting them to shift course and go in a different direction because they understood why you were doing it in the first place. And I can, I can imagine this doesn't feel so fickle. So I think that's a fascinating lesson coming out of this one from my perspective. And the other one is just this notion 
that you keep very, very clear with your three questions. Um, if I can remember how you described them, one is what does success really look like and how are we going to, what are we doing? How are we getting there? Is it, are we moving towards that? The second is what can I control in this situation? What can't I control? So where do I have to get my hands in and what is I just have to live with? And the third is who do I have on it and how much can I trust that they're getting on with it and doing the right things? Fascinating discussion. Sujata, thank you for being with us. And my guest today is Sujata Bhatia from American Express. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Londa. Thanks. And join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.